So let's start at the beginning. The beginning is Siddhartha, before he became the Buddha, went into the streets of the city and saw four things. He saw this really sick person and asked Chandana, his driver, Chandana, why does that person look like that? Chandana said, well, he's sick and everybody that's born gets sick. Nobody can get away from that. And they continued through the streets of the city and they saw this really old person. And Siddhartha said, what does he have? And Chanda said, oh no, he is old. And everybody that lives long enough looks like that. Siddhartha was taken aback by that one. And then Siddhartha saw this dead person and asked Chandana, what's wrong with that person? That person is dead. And everybody that's born has to die. And they continued through the streets of the city and they saw this holy person. And, and Siddhartha said, why does that person look so relaxed and unaffected by all the suffering I've just seen? And Chandana said, he's a holy person. He's looking for the answers to life. And I think at that point, a seed was planted in Siddhartha that he wasn't going to take over the kingdom. He was going to be a holy person. So now we come to this, this problem of birth and death. That birth is just a miracle. You know, the fact that we all made it here, the only planet we know of that can support life. We had to find, or they, the world, the universe had to find two people that liked each other enough for whatever length of time to have us. And then we showed up and they didn't know what to expect. And then they passed on and that's always difficult when you lose your parents. You know it's gonna happen one day but it's hard to say goodbye. And then you're sort of next. And you, that reality can just freak a lot of people out. So how can we look at this death thing in a realistic, spiritual way that will give us a sense of well-being and confidence for the future? And it can start in this way. Buddhism says, there are many heavens and many hells. Whoa. And the thing I like most about that is they figured out that heaven is up and hell is down. Now, how did they figure that out? Why does hell always have to be down? But long, long ago, that's the conclusion they came to. And there are up to 33 heavens and 33 hells. Man, that's a lot of places to go. So death is not the end. Death is just another beginning. One that we may have had infinite times. None of us know how many times we were reborn before this lifetime. And you may say to yourself, well, I come from a Christian country, a Christian state, and there's only one. There's only one birth and one death. But there's two deaths. One's when the body dies, and then one is when you're reborn into heaven as a Christian, you see. And in between is purgatory, I understand, which is the waiting. And so the Buddhists like to practice waiting a lot. That's why we meditate. We're just waiting. 
<laughs> so, okay, for Buddhists, though, we have to assume we've had many lifetimes. And the reason we found Buddhism in this lifetime, perhaps, is because we've been a Buddhist before. Now, I was born in Iowa, and, you know, I didn't know anything about Buddhism until I came to L.A. and turned 30 and realized I'd be dead soon and wanted to find a religion. <laughs> so I bought this book on the religions of mankind, which is now the religions of the world by Houston Smith, and I read the chapter on Buddhism and I said, I want to be a Buddhist. You know, people say, were you divinely inspired? I said, no, it was on page 34. <laughs> So I set about becoming a Buddhist. I, I found a meditation center, which is now where I live, in 1979. We had a wonderful American monk at that time, Shenzhen Young, who was the vice abbot of the center. So my introduction to Buddhism was with a guy that sort of looked like me and had English as a first language. I am so blessed because I cannot do other languages and don't really feel I need to, because everybody speaks English, don't they? Well, maybe not. Okay, so he got me to thinking about stuff that I had never thought about before. He said, those walls are transparent. They really don't exist in the way you think they do. And I'm thinking, is he on drugs? What's he talking about? And I came to understand, after many years of meditation and a lot of reading, that, yeah, the walls are transparent. The walls are just concepts. The wall doesn't really exist in the way we think it does. It's just a, a term we give to this thing. Okay. So that opens up a whole bunch of stuff and a whole bunch of ways of looking at stuff. So I became an official Buddhist around 1980. I took five precepts and the three refuges. And then in 1994, I decided to go all the way and live the lifestyle to see if I liked it, you know? It's doing something that was my passion at the time. How lucky was I to find a center that said, not only will we ordain you as a Buddhist monk, but we will give you a room to live in, we're going to give you some health insurance, a small stipend every month, so you can get those Taco Bell tacos, if you like, and buy some new socks. And you'll never have to work again. Instead of working, you're going to have a lifestyle. And the problem with a lifestyle is that you never go on vacation. Where do you go if you have a lifestyle? Especially Buddhist lifestyle. You might say, well, I'm going to go to Hawaii for Labor Day weekend. And it'll be just so wonderful. And then you get to the beach and everybody is sunburned and suffering. And you go, yeah, more work to do. Suffering has not ended in Hawaii. Man. So I continued to think about stuff. And then I found out about Buddhist afterlife. And I thought, wow, they got an afterlife. And then I thought about all the other religions in the world. And they seem to have an afterlife too. And there's a lot of rites and rituals that go along with the afterlife. Because it's not easy to say goodbye for the ones left behind. Now, one of my Facebook friends is St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota. And one of the monks, the Catholic monks, just died. 
And they have an amazing cemetery with a whole lot of people buried there. A whole lot of people buried there. And so they were burying one more. And it was so fascinating for me to see the picture of the monks doing the last rites and rituals for the monk that had just died and to see the faces of the monks. It was outside. It was a beautiful day. But the faces sort of, to me, represented the fact that they were next. And they had to come to a place of acceptance with the fact that they would be next. And all of us sitting here today, we're going to be next too one day. So how do we come to a place of acceptance with dying as a Buddhist? And what transmigrates to the next life? This can be a problem for Americans and Christians because the Buddha said, I have not found a soul or a self yet. Well, if that doesn't freak you out as a Christian, you mean I don't have a soul? That's my essence. That's who I really am. And you're telling me I'm not who I think I really am? And the Buddha would say, I have looked carefully in mind and body and found nothing that stands independent and unchanging. Oh, man. Nothing that stands independent and unchanging. They thought at one time the soul might exist behind the pituitary gland, which would be as good a place as any for the soul to exist. When they came to understand and create the x-ray machine, they were fascinated by the fact that they could look from top to bottom in a body. And they would sure be sure that the soul would show up someplace. And yet, after all those x-rays, no soul. Just radiation poisoning. Okay. <laughs> then they thought, well, we're going to weigh the body. We'll weigh the body before it dies, and then we'll weigh the body after death. And the difference in weight will be the weight of the soul. Sounds logical until you realize once the body dies, it sort of lets everything go. So there's a lot left behind that was inside the body that's no longer there. And that may be why the body is lighter after death than before death. Now, I had a chance to go to the Orange County Coroner's Office as a volunteer police chaplain and watch them dissect the bodies. Ooh. Nobody can go. You can't go to the coroner's office. They won't let you in. Why? It's the last great secret. You can't get in. Nobody's going to tell you. Yes, come in. Take a look at all the dead bodies. You'll be up there one day too. No, people just freak out. So we're in there and we're watching the bodies and the autopsies going on. And at this one point, I don't want to be too graphic, but it's rather humorous in a way, that they were going to take a, uh, a specimen of the brain. So they had to cut the scalp and they had to pull it back and over the face and then have a little drill to go in and take a sample of the brain. So one of the police chaplains I was standing next to said this about the scalp being pulled over the face. 
It's not bad enough that they're dead, but now they can't see either. <laughs> That's how it goes when you're with a bunch of chaplains in the coroner's office. And the Baptist chaplain brought muffins and coffee for afterwards. Part of their tradition. Okay, so here we go. We all have to die. What my grace from one lifetime to the next according to Buddhism? It's not, it's not your soul. It is your karmic energy. Wow. Okay, so what is this karmic energy? What is karma? Karma is everything you think, everything you say, everything you do. Karma is like everything. Okay? And what karma does when you think, say, or do something, you're taking a neutral energy and you're giving it a moral value. You're literally transforming the energy in the world in either a wholesome or unwholesome way. And in that transformation of energy, there will be a price to pay. There is karma and there is consequence. So if you are thinking, speaking, and acting skillfully, you will have a pleasant and wholesome consequence. On the other hand, if you're unskillful in what you think, say, and do, you will have an unwholesome consequence. And you will suffer more, not less. So Buddhism lacks a divine lawgiver to define for us what is right and what is wrong. It would be so much easier that way if we could look at and say, okay, this is wrong. We can't do that. A Buddhism has to say, well, it's going to be unskillful if I suffer more. And it's going to be skillful if I suffer less. But sometimes you sort of have to wait for the consequences to take effect to understand whether you will be suffering more or suffering less. But thankfully, Buddhism doesn't say you have to wait. You can be proactive, and this is what you can do. If you want to have wholesome, skillful, good karma, okay? You have to transform your greed into generosity. You have to transform your hatred and anger into loving kindness and compassion. You have to transform your delusion and ignorance into wisdom and clarity. Okay, cool. Now we know how to do it. Well, we don't know how to do it yet, but we know that can be done. It is the Buddhist practice of meditation that allows you to change your mind, to transform your consciousness from greed into generosity. So we sit for many hours, oftentimes daily, just watching the thoughts arising, existing, and passing away, and perhaps even noting whether this is a skillful thought or unskillful thought. Is this a good thought or a bad thought? Is this a wholesome thought or an unwholesome thought? When we find a wholesome thought, maybe one of generosity, 
Maybe you want to share a piece of your apple pie with someone. Then you turn that into an activity. You take that intention and turn it into an activity or turn it into speech. Okay? And by doing that, you're creating good karma in the world by transforming the neutral energy into positive energy. See how that sort of works? But what does that require us to do? It requires us to be aware of our thoughts. And most people aren't. If you've ever had a lengthy conversation with someone who's not really aware of their thoughts, it can be really boring. Because it doesn't go anywhere. It's just talking for the sake of talking. But if you talk to someone who understands the importance of thought and speech and action, wow, what a pleasant surprise that is. You could sit all day and listen to those people. And you'd always learn something about yourself in listening to them. Cool. Okay. So now we are faced with this dilemma. How am I going to create enough good karma during my life to die well? And what do I need to do to die well? At those moments of death, our consciousness is being transformed in spite of our meditation practice, in spite of who we think we are, in spite of where we are, our consciousness starts to break down. Okay? And the idea of time begins to disappear. That an eternity could happen in a minute. That one minute could turn out to be an eternity. And are you ready for it? Are you ready for eternity? Man. And are you going to really feel bad about all the stuff you didn't do? And will that be your last thought on this plane of existence before your next rebirth? That I should have done this? I should have done that? Oh, man, we don't want to go there. And if you're like me, about 3 o'clock in the morning, your eyes just sort of wake up and realize what a jerk you've been your whole life. And now you got to go back to sleep. <laughs> Man. So we don't want that to happen as we're checking out. We don't want to go there. So somebody once told me about a really skillful thing you can do while you're alive. It's to start your book of life. Get a book, empty pages, get a pencil. And each day in that book... Write down two, three good things that you did today. And no matter what kind of life you live, you most likely have done two or three good things every day. This morning, as I'm feeding the cats in the front yard of the meditation center, a man walks by and he stops and looks at the cats and says, that's so wonderful. They were all waiting for you. Of course they were hungry. <laughs> but I didn't want to ruin his illusion. I said, yeah, you know, it's really a nice way to start your day. I can tell myself that I at least did one good thing today in feeding the cats. And he just smiled and walked on. But that's how I feel about it. 
And if you're a parent and you got to feed your kids every day, you start your day with one good thing, feeding those kids. And if you got a dog or a parrot or fish, just giving them a little food, oh, man. So that's the deal. You write it down, you write it down, you write it down. Okay, you might have three or four books by the time you die. Now you have to enlist a friend or relative or maybe even someone you don't know, like the nurse. And you say, what I'd like you to do as I'm dying is I want you to read from the book of my life all the good things that I've done. I want those to be my last thoughts, those good thoughts. And so imagine now as you're dying and you're letting go. You're letting go of your life. You're letting go of your golf clubs. You're letting go of your wife or husband, your children, your dog and your cat. And somebody's reading to you the three good things you need that did that day, and then the next day, and the next day. And you just get this sort of half smile on your face and realize you had a good life. And you were a good person in that good life. That is a possible way to end our life. And I like that. I think that is cool. And if you're a religious person, every religion has a bunch of stuff for you to do as you're dying. So you, can, you need to learn that stuff. You need to have enough confidence in life and death to go ask your religious person, the monk, the rabbi, the minister, the priest. You need to say to them, what's the best way for me to die? Because they're only going to tell you what the best way is to live. That's their job. If you want to have a good life, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. They're not going to tell you how to die. They don't want to lose you. you know? so, so you ask them, Father, what's the best way for me to die? What are you going to do when you die? Maybe I can do some of that too. And see what they say. Get some ideas. We're of an age now where this is like really important. You know, 50 years ago, we wouldn't have this conversation. We wouldn't even think it applied to us 50 years ago. But today we go, yeah, this is good stuff. I need to learn how to die so I can live the rest of my life in a skillful, wholesome, clear way. Yeah, cool. Okay, here we go. So now... What's the first heaven for a Buddhist? And I'm going to talk about the early Buddhist tradition of Theravada first and then go into the Mahayana that made an amazing contribution to afterlife. So Theravada Buddhism. The first heaven is the perfect heaven. It's where all of us would want to go. It's just so nice. And everybody is so friendly. And all your old pets are there ready to greet you. And you go, wow, I'm so glad I got here. And then Buddhism says, but it's not forever. It's only 100,000 human lifetimes. And then you got to go, man, because your karma wears out. Your karma account that you've been depositing all your good karma in this account, you finally depleted it. And you have to leave heaven and get reborn again. Always rebirth, always rebirth. Now, the second heaven is almost as good, except 
there's a bit of desire that goes along with this heaven. That it's never quite the perfect heaven. It could always be just a little bit better, if only. If only. Oh, those words, if only. But it never gets better. And then what happens? You have to leave that heaven too. Then we come to the human realm, which is where we made it to. Depending on how you look at Buddhism and rebirth, it is the best place for us to be born. And why is that? Because there's just enough suffering to keep us honest and to keep us striving for the answer. And there's just enough pleasure and happiness to prevent us from taking our own life in most cases. Okay, so it's a perfect balance. And it has the Dharma. The human realm has the Dharma. The Dharma is for humans. The Buddha said, my teachings are for humans, and you can be a Buddha too. Okay, cool. So we made it here. But what happens when we get here? It's not 100,000 human lifetimes. It's one human lifetime. It can be 50, 60, 70, 80 years. That sounds like a lot until you be until you're 60, 70, 80. Doesn't sound like much when you get there. And then and then you have to die and be reborn again. Now we come to the first hell realm. According to Buddhism, the first hell realm is the animal realm, where all our pets live. You know, little Lucky the dog is in the hell realm. How could Lucky be in the hell realm? Because Lucky only wants to do three things. Lucky wants to sleep, Lucky wants to eat, and Lucky wants to have sex. That's what Lucky does. That's it. They never get past it. That's why it's the first hell realm. Most humans don't get past it either, but we have the ability to. So that's good. Now we come to the next hell realm, the hungry ghost hell realm. These are giant creatures 10 feet tall. And they all have big bellies. And they all have a pinhole for a mouth. And no matter how hard they try to cram the food through that pinhole of a mouth, they're constantly hungry. Never satisfied. Whoa, man. Not a good place to go. Thankfully, it's only 100,000 human lifetimes, and you get to be reborn again, hopefully up. Last hell realm, the worst place you could ever be. You have an image of yourself, a body image, that's in this hell realm. And you're just sort of minding your own business, and you're going to a park, and all the leaves in the tree turn into razor blades and fall off the tree and cut you into a million pieces and you scream out in terror and then you're reborn again right on the spot to die again and again and again until finally you've died enough times to be reborn out of this hell realm. Okay. Man, now this is the Reader's Digest version of Buddhist afterlife. Not the 33 heavens or 33 hells. So there's many books out there. You can read that if you like. But it sets up, for me, the story. 
that I got to follow. I said, I, I don't want to go to the hell realm. I would like to be reborn back in the human realm again because I've got work to do, and maybe I could get some of that finished. But if I have to go to heaven, I'll go for it. i take a little break, enjoy it, 100,000 lifetimes. Say, yeah, that's cool, you know. Everything is just the way you want it to be. Yeah, I like that idea. Okay, so we've got to get ready for this. We've got to get ready. We've got to get our karma ready for our rebirth. So here we go. Now, being a hospital chaplain at UCLA Medical Center, it was really interesting when a Buddhist family member died in the ward because they wanted time. They knew what they needed to do was to chant and encourage the karmic energy to be reborn in one of the heaven realms. So the family would gather and they would do their chanting. But the hospital would say, you know, we really need the room. We, we can't let you be here for a day or two days or three days chanting so the karmic energy can be reborn. We got other people in the hospital. And then what is death? Is it, is it brain death or is it when the heart stops? Because you can have brain death with the heart still going and that then they can harvest your organs. Anne Haste had brain death, but they kept her body alive so she could they could harvest her organs. And as a Buddhist clergy person on the spiritual care committee, I sort of felt really uncomfortable with the idea that I might have to stand next to somebody who wasn't really dead so they could harvest the organs. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, I, I saw science fiction movies about this stuff, you know, and I'm going, I don't know, man. So, so it's good to harvest organs. It's good to donate your organs. You don't need them anymore anyway. You, you got a whole other life to look forward to. But there's, these are some of the things that maybe the hospital is not the best place to die. Just, just maybe. Now, my mother, who died at 84, was in the hospital. She was non-religious. We were brought up non-religious. But her husband was a Lutheran. And I thought it was interesting that when she was in the hospital dying, she wanted to see the Lutheran minister, that those seeds had been planted long, long ago. And then she talked to her, her grandchildren, who were both nurses, who were staying with my brother, until my mother died in northern Wisconsin. And they said, we got to get her out of the hospital. We're going to rent an ambulance, and we're going to take her from the hospital to her room in her house. And because the granddaughters were both nurses, they could look over her in a medical way as well. So they brought her home. They put her in her bed. Six hours later, she was dead. She knew she was home. And she could die any way she wanted to. She didn't have to be plugged into the wall. She didn't have to have people coming and asking how she's feeling. You know, things like that. You know what I'm saying? So, so we, we need to sort of put some forethought into our own demise. 
and, and plan for a good death so we can have a good rebirth. See, this is not the end. As I said before, this is just another beginning. Okay. So when the karmic energy leaves the body, let me tell you a quick story. We just celebrated the Ulambana ceremony at the meditation center. And it's the Day of the Dead in Buddhism, Mahayana, uh, Mahayana Buddhism, Ulambana. And, and what we do is we have pieces of bamboo outside the front door. And as the wind rustles through the bamboo, the spirits who are still on earth and can't figure out how to get the hell out of earth, because if you're on earth without a body or a mind, it's no fun. They hear the rustling. They hear the sound of the bamboo. And we have these wooden clackers, these big wooden clackers. Clang, hang, hang. We're inviting all the spirits who are lost into the zendo. And then we give them a dharma talk on what they need to do to be reborn off of the earth into another more appropriate realm of existence. Okay? So do Buddhists believe in ghosts? Absolutely. They are around. But they're around because they can't figure out how to get reborn out of it. So this ceremony is designed for that. There's a story. Tik Tianan, the founder of our meditation center, was invited to go to an apartment house by the apartment manager because... There was a spirit ghost in there, and every time they rented the apartment, the spirit ghost cha you know, chased everybody out. Okay. So Tik Tianan took a couple of his monks, and they sort of processed down the road into the apartment, and they said, we want you to come with us. And so the spirit ghost energy followed Tik Tianan back to the meditation center, and Tik Tianan gave a sermon, and the ghost disappeared, and the manager was able to rent the apartment again. I love that story. <laughs> so there are a lot of things, a lot of realities, a lot of different levels of consciousness that we have no idea exist in this very moment. Does anybody have cats, or has anybody ever had cats? Okay. Did you ever look at the cat just sort of looking at nothing? Yeah. Like, and the cat's probably saying, don't the humans see that? What's wrong with them? Impending doom is right over there. And they don't seem to care. And the cats are just like, wow. So there's a lot of levels of reality. We have not, no idea. We can visit them occasionally in our meditation practice. But we can't stay there. You know, and I, I got to bring this up. I got to bring this up again. I brought it up, I think, last time. Aaron Rodgers, quarterback, Packers, my favorite team. Aaron Rodgers was being interviewed by a sports guy. And Aaron Rodgers decided to tell the world that he does psychedelics. In the last two seasons, of his football were the best he'd ever had. And that he had never been more in love 
more in love with people before until he started to take the psychedelics. Now, Aaron Rodgers is a role model. You know, kids all over the country follow him, look up to him, decide that they want to be like him. I'm watching this on YouTube. You can see it on YouTube if you're interested in this. I think Rogan did the interview. Okay. So I'm thinking back, and you might well think back too. Do you remember a guy named Tim Leary? Oh, man, tune in, turn on, and drop out. Yeah, good. Ramdas, huh? He went to India and found a guru and became a guru himself. Richard Alpert. Wow, okay. All you needed to do was follow them through their life. Ramdas at one point said, you know, psychedelics are just a launching pad. You know, but the problem with having that launch pad is you need it every time you want to get launched. You know, I go, yeah, that's it, man. That we could have, should have, maybe learned that that's not it. Psychedelics ain't it. We're all of an age that all we need to do is stand up quickly and we can experience the same psychedelic experience. You know, okay. <laughs> That's not it. Meditation is it. You can have the same psychedelic experiences in your meditation practice. It will take longer. It will allow you to mature in a very specific way. You will grow and you'll be a better person for it. And psychedelics can't offer that. Psychedelics is just a trip. And by the time it's over, you can't remember half the stuff you did or thought about or became. And a week later, it's like it never happened. So what good is it? It's just a party game. That if we're really serious about transformation of consciousness, don't do drugs. Do meditation. Do you medicate? No, I meditate. <laughs> so I just had to throw that out there. Okay. But I've got to add this, Aldous Huxley. Anybody hear of Aldous Huxley? Anybody know how Aldous Huxley died? Okay. Great story. Aldous Huxley was dying on his deathbed. His wife was reading to him from the Tibetan Book of the Dead and his doctor injected him with LSD. That is a trip. <laughs> so I'm not advocating that for anybody except Aldous Huxley. We need to have that book of our good life and read from that. The only kind of medication we should be taking is vitamin D and probiotics. Come on, let's get real, you know? That will enhance our body and maybe our mind with Prevagen. I don't know. I've never taken it, but people say, I can think better. I have more clarity. Yeah, meditation can give that to you as well. And it's 100% organic and natural. Okay. And the only side effect is wisdom. <laughs> and that can be a problem. But so here we are. We finally die. 
all the rites and rituals have been performed. And now, seven days later, in Buddhist temples, they have another rites and rituals, seven days. And then sometimes 21 days, or sometimes three months, or sometimes six months, and sometimes a year, just to make sure that the karmic energy was reborn and found another realm of existence. Okay, so it doesn't end. And then they have, in a lot of Mahayana houses, they have an altar of all the dearly departed. You know, cousins, mothers, grandparents, you know. And, and usually the elder son is in charge of taking care of it. You know, and you offer candles and maybe a little food because they get hungry in the heaven realm and stuff like that. And I, I never could understand that. I, coming from Iowa, you know, it's just like, but then it dawned on me. They were paying homage to their ancestors. They realized that if any one of those ancestors didn't get born, they wouldn't be there. They wouldn't be there. We have hundreds of people, thousands of people connected to our birth. And they were honoring that. And I thought, cool, that's important. We do not stand, stand independently and alone. We are the product of hundreds of people coming together, having other people, having other people, and we finally showed up. Very good. So now, the karmic energy has been released. And it has to find a new home. How does it find a new home? They call this karmic energy a Gandhava in early Buddhism. And Gandhava is something that's released. It almost sounds like an entity, but it's more of a process. So imagine this process called Gandhava, and it needs to find a new home if it wants to be reborn as a human being. So it's on the lookout for people having sex. It's, a, it's attracted to darkness and moisture. I love this stuff. You read this in the ancient Buddhist text and you go, damn. <laughs> and then, he, then once the couple has had, is having sex, then the Gandhava shows up and joins the party. And so we need for human rebirth, according to Buddhism, a sperm, an egg, and a Gandhava. And those three things come together, and a new life is ahead for the Gandhava. Okay, so now, when does life start? We, we, all this abortion stuff, when does life start? Okay, well, it starts at conception, basically, according to Buddhism. Is it appropriate to have an abortion? Buddhism says this. It's always wrong to kill, but sometimes it's necessary, and there's always a consequence. So it's up to the person to decide and accept the consequence. At this level of reality, there's no right or wrong. There's no skillful or unskillful. There's activity, and there's thought, and there's speech, and there's consequence. So we can't say, always have an abortion, never have an abortion. We can only say, it's up to you. And that may not be good enough for a lot of people, but that's how it seems to be to me 
And that seems to be what Buddhism has to say about it. So now the Gandhava, the sperm and egg have come together. Nine months later, we come into the world. And a person might say, I said this many times as a teenager, I didn't ask to be born. Buddhism said, yes, you did. (laughs) So now you have to put up with all the past karma. See, it didn't go away. All that past karma followed you, this process. Okay, It's like the wake of a boat. You got this little outboard engine. You have this wake behind the boat. The boat sinks. But the wake continues and attaches to the next boat. So you have all this karma. So if you have really good karma from all your past lifetimes, you might be reborn in Paulus Verdes. <laughs> you know? And of course you'll take it for granted. It couldn't be any other way. But see how this karma kind of works at the beginning of your life? It sort of defines you in a very special way because of all your past lifetimes. But it doesn't end there. We all know of people that were born with a golden spoon in their mouth and screwed up so badly during their life, they ended up in prison for 20 years. How could that be? It's because we're in charge. There's no predestination. There's no fate in Buddhism. It depends on your choices. It depends on why you're choosing it that way. So it depends on thinking, speaking, and acting. And at any moment in our life, if it seems to be going wrong, we have the ability to change course by doing and thinking and speaking skillful things. So none of us are ever stuck in a bad place if we don't want to be there or if we don't see how to get out. We can get out of every situation because of what we think, say, and do. And I had this woman come with me to juvenile hall, and she would bring food. She'd bring, like, apples and oranges, and we'd hand them out to the boys in juvenile hall. And she really wanted to do that because she knew that would make her karma better, and she would have a better rebirth. And I thought, what a great reason to do that. You know, other than, you know, just having, I want to do it because it feels good. I want to do it because it makes my life better to give these apples and oranges to people who don't have access to them. Cool. Okay. So we have that ability too. Are we going to do it for us or them or us and them? I have found in my own life, it started with, I'm going to do it for me. Because it's my life. And then I started to understand that the more I did it for them, the more my life benefited. So in order to do it for me in a skillful way, I needed to do it for them too. Whoa, man, 700 billion thems. Are you kidding me? Will I ever get to the end? No You won't until. Now, we've talked about everything being temporary, everything in a constant state of change and flux. There's only one thing that doesn't change. There's only one thing that is unborn 
and undying in Buddhism. And in Mahayana Buddhism, I've got to tell you about this, they've got a heaven realm called the Pure Land. The Pure Land. This is the most popular form of Buddhism in Asia, according to what I've read. And what you do is you chant, Amitabha Buddha, Amitabha Buddha, Amitabha Buddha, Amitabha Buddha, Amitabha Buddha. So Amitabha is the Buddha, Amitabha Buddha, Amitabha Buddha. And you chant that over and over and over again. And if you're working, you know, fixing roads, you can chant that, Amitabha Buddha, Amitabha Buddha. If you're changing diapers on the kids, Amitabha Buddha, Amitabha Buddha. You know, you can do this every day, all day. And then the last thought you have is Amitabha Buddha. And what happens then after you die? That last thought is Amitabha Buddha. He comes down from his heaven realm personally to escort you to his heaven. Sounds a little Christian, doesn't it? But I love it because you don't have to be a scholar to do this. You don't have to read a hundred ancient texts to do this. You don't even have to meditate, even though as you recite Amitabha Buddha, you are meditating. And then you get to go to his heaven realm. And in his heaven realm, everything speaks the Dharma. The rabbits, the squirrels, the birds, the mountains, the trees, all speaking the Dharma. So when you finally make it to Pure Land, you're guaranteed to achieve nirvana. Ultimately, that's where we're all going. Nirvana, as a Buddhist. That's the place we all want to go. Okay, so you need to be reborn out of Pure Land into nirvana. You need to be reborn out of the heaven realms, the human realm, the hell realms, into nirvana. That's the end. That's the final goal. That's the place with no place. So what is nirvana? You know what? The Buddha never really talked about it. He never thought that we would have enough clarity or knowledge or intelligence to really understand what the hell he was talking about because none of us have ever experienced it. It's really hard to convey something when you can't experience it. Okay? So I, we have a little fish pond in the backyard of the meditation center. And for a long time, we had turtles. And then the turtles left and went someplace. Where do turtles go? And I always thought to myself, you know, the turtle gets to go into the pond and swim around and eat some of the fish food and come out and sun itself on a rock. And wouldn't it be interesting if one of the fish asked the turtle, what's it like out there? What's it like with no water out there? And no matter what the turtle would say to the fish, the fish wouldn't get it because the fish can never leave the water. That's its only reality. So we can never leave the human realm because that's our only reality. Okay, so if the Buddha was going to say, this is nirvana, and we listen to what the Buddha said, it wouldn't make any sense. It would, it would be non-logical and non-intuitive. It's beyond our human experience. Okay, so does it take a certain amount of faith to believe that there is a nirvana and that if we do the right things, the skillful things, the good things, that we too will go to nirvana? It does take a certain amount of faith in the beginning. That, that first step, 
that first step into Buddhism and that first step into afterlife. And when you hear all the different things about Buddhist afterlife, to believe that they may be true, yeah, it takes faith. But what happens then is the next step, the most important step. The next step is when the faith transforms into confidence, that you know it's true. How do you know it's true? Well, you, you have a strong meditation practice. You think the Buddha had something to say and, and, and said it in a way that allowed me to achieve what he achieved. And then you read the ancient texts. And there's one really interesting one I can recommend. It's called the Terigata, the poems of the ancient nuns. The poems of the ancient nuns. And all these ancient nuns wrote these poems, and they were all enlightened. They had all achieved nirvana. And they talk about it. In a way, the, the stories and things. And, and you can find it online for free. I have a copy on my website for free. You can buy it from Amazon.com. The poems of the ancient nuns, the Terigata. And it's fascinating. So you start reading this stuff. And you start saying, yeah, you know what, this, this is actually, this could be true in a spiritual way, in a religious way, and it could be true in my life too, you know? So the Buddhist afterlife is profound, it's complicated, it's a fascinating subject to study and pursue, and sooner or later it will be so useful You'll be so thankful that you took the plunge and decided to practice. And now it's your turn to die well and be reborn.